Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Saturday, December 4th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, December 5th, 2021. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. How's it going, lady? Um, I'm doing pretty good. Um, kind of in the Christmas spirit. I got my first Christmas tree. Ooh, that's and it's nice. a real one. Yeah, I'm very surprised that you know Dre hasn't poisoned himself or messed it up. Okay, because he likes to eat stuff that's not food. So. I know the feeling. I'm hoping to get mine's up this weekend as well. It's just been kind of hectic this week for me. So, yeah. Are you gonna get a real one, or you have a fake one that you no, put up? I got a fake one. Uh, ain't nobody got time for that. We just gonna recycle <laughs> and just okay. Yeah, let it do what it do. Um, but it's always fun to decorate the tree. So, looking forward to it. Yeah, I got a Grace Jones and a Prince ornament. I gotta get some Ooh. more ornaments. That's cool. That's like, really I, cool. I got them from this um, shop in Brooklyn that I like them. Like it can be expensive, but it's all handmade artisan stuff. That's like either local or they have partnerships with uh, artisans around the world. So you can get, you know, real genuine handmade stuff. (laughs) And when I bought the ornaments, the cashier was like, oh, Prince looks like he's going through some things, I guess, because his eyes on the ornament were kind of like going sideways. <laughs> I'm like, oh, whatever. Like, you know who it is. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Very true to form, right? Yeah. That's cool. Oh, and I, I just want to say also, uh, happy Hanukkah. It's still Hanukkah right now. So, you know, I'm not sure if Emily is doing anything to celebrate, but if you are, happy Hanukkah to you. Well, wishing you all a happy holiday season, wherever you are in the world. Um, We have some interesting stories on today's docket. We'll start off with our local news, which is reporting on the nation's first supervised drug injection center that is opening in New York City. Uh, Fortunately, we have to talk about the Michigan school shooting that happened at Oxford High School near Detroit. Um, some really cool news about Barbados becoming a republic, and we have some good news about the Great Barrier Reef. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Emily, you're up. All right. Hello. Uh, This local story comes from a November 30th New York Times article uh, that I will be quoting from heavily. Uh, It's by Jeffrey C. Mays and Andy Newman, and it's titled Nation's First Supervised Drug Injection Sites Open in New York in New York. During the first official day in operation at the two Manhattan facilities, trained staff reversed two overdoses, officials said. The article explains, quote, in an attempt to curb a surge in overdose deaths caused by increasingly potent street drugs, New York City authorized two supervised injection sites in Manhattan that began operating on Tuesday. Trained staff at two sites in the neighborhoods of East Harlem and Washington Heights provided clean needles, administered naloxone, (laughs) I should know how to pronounce that, administered naloxone to reverse uh, overdoses and provided users with options for addiction treatment. Users brought their own drugs to the site, to the sites. Users brought their own drugs to the sites. New York, the country's most populous city, became the first U.S. city to open officially authorized injection sites, facilities that opponents view as magnets for drug abuse, but proponents praise as giving a less punitive and more effective approach to addressing addiction. 
Other cities, including Philadelphia, San Francisco, Boston, and Seattle, have taken steps toward supervised injection, but have yet to open sites amid a debate over the legal and moral implications of sanctioning illegal drug use. The two Manhattan sites were already operating as needle exchange programs, and some residents in the communities have previously raised concerns about the decision to place the sites in less affluent areas of the borough. In an interview, Dr. Dave A. Chokshi, the city's health commissioner, said the city was moving forward to address a public health crisis. Every four hours, someone dies of a drug overdose in New York City, he said. We feel a deep conviction and also sense of urgency in opening overdose prevention centers. Mayor Bill de Blasio began championing safe injection sites in 2018, citing their use and success in European and Canadian cities. The decision to officially allow the sites to open comes during the mayor's last last few weeks in office and as he considers a run for governor. He said in a statement that the decision will show other cities that after decades of failure, a smarter approach is possible. The mayor also sent a letter to the providers promising not to take enforcement action against their operations. Four of the city's five district attorneys, including only the Staten, oh, I'm sorry, four of the city's five district attorneys, excluding only the Staten Island district attorney, Michael McMahon, supported supervised drug sites. Eric Adams, the mayor-elect, has expressed support for overdose prevention centers, as has the incoming Manhattan district attorney, Alvin Bragg. Quote, nationally overdose overdose deaths rose to more than 100,000 in the 12-month period that ended in April, according to the National Center for Health Statistics, up nearly 30% from the previous 12, 12 months, I'm sorry, up nearly 30% from the previous 12 months. More than 2,000 people died of a drug overdose in New York City in 2020, the highest total since the city began tracking, began keeping track of overdose deaths in 2000. During the first three months of 2021, there were close to 600 overdose deaths, according to preliminary data. New York also saw an increase in overdose deaths, overdose deaths related to fentanyl and other synthetic drugs. The city provides funding to the two nonprofits that run the needle exchange programs, New York Harm Reduction Educators and Washington Heights Corner Project, which are, which are merging to form On Point NYC. Quote, Kaylin C., On Point's Senior Director of Programs, told the New York Times that, quote, about 40 people had come in to use, a, to use as of 2 p.m. at the East Harlem location on the first official day of operation, while 32 people had used drugs under supervision at the Washington Heights site, and that, quote, staff had reversed two overdoses. Quote, federal law, however, still describes the activities at On Point's two facilities as unlawful. A federal law, often referred to as the crack house statute, makes it illegal to operate, own, or rent a location for the purpose of using illegal substances. The Justice Department, under the Trump administration, sued in 2019 to stop a supervised injection facility in Philadelphia from opening. The Biden administration has embraced harm reduction methods, but has not explicitly endorsed supervised injection sites. Dr. Chokshi said the city has had productive conversations with federal and state health officials and said he believed the facilities would be allowed to operate because of a shared sense of urgency about addressing the overdose crisis. Officials from the Justice Department declined to comment Tuesday on whether they would intervene. Quote, in East Harlem, already home to a heavy uh, concentration of methadone uh, clinics and other drug treatment centers, 
uh, Eva Chan, a member of Community Board 11, has been bracing for the opening of the injection site and lamented that it would just further cement the neighborhood status as a place where drug use and sales are tolerated. If every district in New York City has one site and it's not right next to my home, I'm not against it, Ms. Chan said. But the root cause of high drug use in East Harlem is the overconcentration of drug treatment facilities, and this does not address that. Quote, Sideria Asbury Crestfield, a co-founder of the Greater Harlem Coalition, a neighborhood improvement group, has held protests to demand a reduction in the number and density of substance abuse treatment facilities in Harlem. Not only can I buy my drugs here, but I can safely shoot them up in a comfortable atmosphere where people are watching over me, Ms. Asbury uh, Crestfield said. And then they go outside and they wreak havoc in the neighborhood. We can't live like this. Quote, health officials will identify additional needle exchange programs that can expand their services to include supervised injections and overdose prevention by looking at where those facilities are and where there are clusters of people who are overdosing. Quote, proponents of supervised injection sites argue that the facilities will not only prevent overdose deaths, but can actually stem the the problem of public drug use that often leaves a trail of used syringes in the street and in parks. Quote, in 2020, a study in the New England Journal of of Medicine found that there had been no overdose deaths at an unsanctioned supervised uh, injection site from 2014 to 2019. There had been more than 10,000 injections that resulted in 33 opioid-involved overdoses, which the staff reversed using naloxone. A systemic review of 22 studies of overdose prevention sites, most focused on a supervised injection facility in Vancouver, found that overdose deaths were reduced while there was not an increase in crime or nuisance activities in the surrounding neighborhoods. Quote, Councilwoman Diana Ayala, who represents East Harlem and the South Bronx, said that the problem of drug sales and use exploded in the pandemic. She now finds so many syringes encircling her vehicle when it's parked near her East, uh, sorry, when it's parked near her East Harlem office that she keeps a box in the trunk to safely collect them. She received a call on Tuesday morning from Councilman Robert F. Holden, a conservative Democrat who represents Queens and remains unconvinced that the sites won't disrupt stable neighborhoods. Mr. Holden said he wanted to learn more, but he already knows that his constituents will object, even though many families have loved ones who are struggling with addiction. Quote, that sentiment played out Tuesday afternoon in East Harlem, where the supervised injection site is across the street from the Graham School, an early education program run by the Association to Benefit Children. Juan Carlos Feliz, a technician picking up his children aged two and three years old, was surprised to learn of the safe injection site across the street. That's not cool at all, said Mr. Feliz, 28. Why would they have a place like that near a school? Inside the site... China Rodriguez, 36, a crack user, said she was grateful that uh, the facility was in operation. We're here. The police are not bothering us. We're not out in the park dying, and we're not out in front of kids, she said. Uh, Yeah, so that is the story. Um, It brings up a lot of different ideas and issues that are really important, including decriminalizing personal drug use and how that idea plays out in different neighborhoods and different um, that have different income levels and things like that. So, um, definitely an important story to keep your eye on, especially considering like the skyrocketing, you know, overdose rates and drug use in the country. Um, 
Well, this is a tricky one because I used to live in East Harlem. So I am familiar with um, the amount of methadone clinics that are up there and the high use of drugs in that area. Uh, It's really tough when you live there to not see any of that activity. And also uh, within your building, right? Like the safety that you feel coming in and out of your building just because it's, it's everywhere, you know, it's not like you can say it's on this corner or that one is, it's pretty much all over that neighborhood. So I have mixed feelings about this. I think it's a good idea to have, to be able to recover people and to help them. But I also feel like there's a level of enabling that's happening here. That's not okay. And it's a very specific model of trying to help people and get people off the streets. I think it's going to take a while for it to be truly effective because if you know, you can go here and, you know, not necessarily be picked up or bothered or, you know, say, why wouldn't you? So it almost perpetuates it as much as it helps. What do you think? Um, well, I think I, I understand what the residents are saying as far as um, there not being an equal distribution of these types of sites throughout the city like there does seem to be there is yeah those things really will be con- like these types of sites or like methadone clinics will often be concentrated in an area but you don't ever see them in others even though statistically people use drugs legal and illegal across you know race lines class lines all of that um but it just seems like, you know, if you're a certain type of person, like you can do those things in like the comfort of a nicer area or something. But if you're not that type of person, when you do it, you're more exposed to getting harassed. Um, so, yeah, I think that this is I think it's a good thing to have them because ultimately. People use drugs and I think that it makes sense because, you know, if you have people in your life that struggle with addiction or, you know, you've seen the effects that it can have on a person. I can understand why you would want to be like, you know, this is a problem where like they have to stop using. But I think just in reality, I don't really think that that's realistic. So if we know that people are always going to have this issue or like there will always be some people that have this issue, I think the best thing you can do is make it so that they're not at risk of dying because I don't think I don't think forcing people who do have substance abuse issues to have to do it in a way that's dangerous. I don't think that's going to make people get help either. You know, so I, I don't know. I just feel like as long as there's, you know, humans And as long as there has been humans and like things in the natural world that can get you high, like there's people that will use it. So, you know, I would rather them have a place to go where, you know, they're not going to OD or, you know, get abused or whatever than to keep it the way it is. And then the only solution you have is like, well, police and harassment, you know. And that's not necessarily the answer. Yeah. I totally understand. I definitely do think that they need to be more widely distributed, but you know, it's also one of those things like we're both saying, you know, there's going to be some consequences in either way. So maybe as they start to develop the facilities more, start to evolve on the way that they're delivering service or what they're allowing, you know, I don't know 
how far, how, what the rules and restrictions are of this, but it could be a breeding point for something good, you know, maybe for people who are recovered, maybe once they are required them to do some level of counseling or treatment, um, as a result, you know, um, but I guess we'll see that as, as they move along. Yeah. It would be interesting to see the studies in other countries and, you know, the, the effects it has on the communities. I think around Emily it. mentioned it in her story. I think um, she was talking about cases in, um, in Canada where they do it, where so far they haven't noted an uptake. They haven't noticed an increase in um, crime or anything related to the clinics opening in those areas. So I do feel like it is like, I definitely think you're going to have more of a problem if people are using illegal drugs and they have to do it in a way that's like hidden or they're, you know, I think that you're more likely to have people acting out and potentially harming themselves or others if there isn't a safe injection site versus having one. So I think, you know, I think sometimes people... You know, and I I grew up, I went to middle and high school at a public school in what people consider like a rough part of town. And there was a methadone clinic near me. And, you know, I, I wasn't afraid of the people in the air. You know, it's like, you you might see someone, it's like, okay, like that person, I'm going to assume like they probably might have a drug issue or whatever. But I think sometimes people should not assume that that means they're necessarily going to do something to, you know what I'm saying? You know, it's like there are people that need support. And I think if you have the right supports, you can avoid it becoming like a snowballing issue that turns into violence and other things. That's a very good point. So we shall see um, that I definitely hope that it helps more people um, get the resources that they need. So we're going to go ahead and take our first music break today before hopping into to our national news story. This track is from the new Halle Berry movie called Bruised on Netflix. Did you see it? I did all, not Jessica? see it. Okay. Apparently she trained as like harder than she ever did in her life and broke like three ribs oh to do God. it. But um, yeah, it's interesting. I would, I would be interested to hear your feedback once you have seen it. But nonetheless, this track is by her and it's called Automatic Woman. We'll be right back.
You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Thanks, and here's Teresa. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, And for this national news story, I have drawn it from three different articles just because it's been unfolding all week. The first one is on CNN. It's called Michigan Oxford High School Shooting. Um, that the authors of that story is Carol Sung and Shimon Porquetes, and also from the NPR um, version of the story, Michigan School Shooting Parents Oxford um, are charged, and that's by Becky Sullivan. On Tuesday, 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly carried out a shooting spree, killing four of his classmates and injuring many others at Oxford High School, located in a community roughly 30 miles north of Detroit. The campus was placed on lockdown during the attack, with some children sheltering in the locker rooms. Deputies rushed to the school around lunchtime as more than 100 calls flooded 911 dispatchers with reports of a shooter. They arrested the student in the hallway within minutes of their arrival. He put his hands up in the air when the deputies approached. The four students who were killed were 16-year-old Tate Myra, 14-year-old Hannah St. Juliana, 17-year-old Madison Baldwin, and Justin Schilling, who died on Wednesday. A teacher who received a graze wound to the shoulder left the hospital, but seven students ranging from age 14 to 17 remained hospitalized through the night with gunshot wounds. The gun the boy was carrying had seven more rounds of ammo in it when he surrendered. Many sources report that the parents of the suspect had purchased the handgun used in the shooting as a Christmas gift for their son for Black Friday. And Jennifer Crumbly, the mother, referred to the gun as their son's new Christmas present on social media posts. She added that the gun was stored unlocked in a drawer in the parents' bedroom. Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard reported that authorities were made aware of the post on social media that said there had been threats of the shooting at the roughly 1,700 students' school, but they hadn't been made aware of those rumors until after the attack. So in a separate incident um, that occurred earlier this month, according to a November 4th letter written by the principal, Steve Wolf, someone threw a deer head in the courtyard from the school's roof, painted several windows on the roof with a red acrylic paint, and used the same paint on concrete near the school building during the early morning hours. Without specifically referencing the incident, the second post on November 12th assured that there had been no threat to our building nor to our students. So that was just a sidebar, but a pretty weird um, event to happen at a school. On the morning of the shooting, the prosecutor said Ethan Crumbly's teacher found a drawing on his desk of a handgun, bullet, and a shooting victim with the words blood everywhere and the thoughts won't stop. Please help. Disturbed, the teacher informed school authorities who called both James and Jennifer Crumbly to the school to discuss the disturbing, violent drawing made by their son. The parents did not inquire about the whereabouts of the gun or inform the school that they had recently purchased it for him. School officials told them that they would be required to seek counseling for him. And after the meeting, he was allowed to return to class. When the news of the active shooter at Oxford High School had been made public, Jennifer texted her son at 1.22 p.m., Ethan, don't do it. 
15 minutes later, James Crumbly called 911 to report the gun was missing and that it may be his son who committed the school shooting. During a video arraignment on Wednesday afternoon, authorities told a judge that investigators had recovered two separate videos from the suspect's cell phone, which were made the night before the incident. He talked about shooting and killing students the next day at Oxford High, and a journal in his backpack also detailed his desire to, quote, shoot up the school, authorities said. Law enforcement authorities in Michigan had searched for the Crumbleys on Friday afternoon after the charges were announced, and the Oakland County Sheriff's Office released images of the couple and details of their vehicle in an alert urging the public to help locate them. The Associated Press reported early that the Crumbleys appeared to be hiding in the building where they were found after a Detroit business owner spotted their car and tipped off police. If convicted, Jennifer and James Crumbley face up to 15 years in prison for each count. Ethan Crumbley faces 24 felony counts, including four counts of first-degree murder and seven counts of assault with intent to murder, in addition to a terrorism charge. He has pleaded not guilty to all, and he will be tried as an adult and faces life in prison if convicted. Karen D. McDonald, the Oakland County prosecutor, had this to say about the case. I'm absolutely sure after reviewing the evidence that it isn't even a close call. It was absolutely premeditated. There are facts leading up to the shooting that suggest that was not, this was just not an impulsive act. Mrs. McDonald says she decided to charge the suspect as an adult because of the severity of the crime and her belief that it was a planned attack. She declined to say whether she believed the gunman had specifically targeted the four students he killed and the seven people he injured, including the teacher. The shooting was the deadliest at a U.S. K-12 campus since 2018 and the 32nd such attack since August 1st. So that is my recap. Um, this is a very troubling story, okay? I mean, it's, it's so verbatim the way all of the details played out on the various sites. I've kind of just been watching it throughout the week to see how it evolved. But this is like the parents were involved in this. This kid is 15 years old and they're bragging on social media that they bought him a gun on Black Friday for Chris. Like, what is happening here? Yeah, that timeline, like I saw it in black and white, like the timeline of how everything happened with the gun purchases and the social media posts and the um, when he was looking up ammunition and stuff on yeah. his phone and the teacher caught him. The mother's talking about, LOL, like... I'm not you shouldn't mad. Have got caught. You shouldn't yeah. have got caught in all this crap. It's really, it's, it's very disturbing, and it's disturbing how many people are out there like this with exactly. the same mentality, you know. Yes, and it's really sad because it was talking about the, some of the kids, you know, that were murdered, and one of them was like, you know, the kids, the school star, football star, and the other were really great students, and it's just really, really sad because that whole community is shook now knowing that these parents and one of the reports I read said they had no ties to community. So now they're trying to find the backstory, how they got there, how long they've been there because they definitely helped this boy premeditate this murder. And it, it's overwhelming. You know, I've, if I had children, I would probably not have allowed them to go back to school for the rest of the week, just out of fear that they're not safe there. And why was he allowed to go back to class after after the incident, after they pulled him out and took him to the office and called his parents? He should have not have been allowed to return to campus that day. They should have put him on a, a suspension or something. Um, they could have prevented some of this. 
I think that's the part that's so difficult is how preventative, how preventable it all was because the signs were there. It wasn't like out of the blue, you know, but it's, I don't know. I think it seeing some of the video of the children being in a room saying, jumping out the window, jumping out the window, you know, and just the fact that like Columbine happened 22 years ago. So that's, that's my first memory of a school shooting that was big news. And just to see the proliferation of them and how normal it's become. It just, I would not want to be a child today. Like that's not, that's no way to have to, to grow up and you got to have that on your mind. For me, it's, it's, the conversations that happen with these children afterwards and the educators that are still employed at this school, you know, that you have to think about the psychological effects on students who don't feel safe with other students. What does that do for, how do you talk to your child as a parent about them feeling scared to attend school? Like what, what do you do to help them overcome these challenges? Because it's never going to be the same at that school and in that community. You know, it's it's really scary. Not too long ago, before the pandemic, they were going around teaching um, active shooter training at a bunch of colleges in New York. I went through it um, within my college, and it was a thing that had been, uh, I don't know if it was um, who actually initiated it. Was it the governor's office or if it was a citywide thing? But we were made to participate in active shooter training, and it just shows you how close to home this really is. Yeah, and um, I don't remember the person's name on Twitter, but someone made a point that because children are going through these drills, unfortunately, the people that are doing the shootings are also in those drills. So, you Mm, know, they can be using things where they know if I say this, they will think it's safe to come out. Yeah. You know, and we, we don't know if that, that happened at all with this, but I'm like, that's a very dark thought, but it's very true. You know, like, and it's, it's unfortunate, but, you know, some people, I think, have a a little bit of like misplaced hope when they just kind of assume that by virtue of being younger, people are more ethical or moral. And that's Mm. really not the case, you know, like when it, whether it's this Rittenhouse person, this school shooter, you know, children get bullied in horrific ways every day. Because Mm -hmm. of their race, their gender, being disabled because of their size, and they don't turn around and shoot up the school, you know, but you do have people who enact that type of violence and terror on their classmates as kids and teenagers. So it's not automatic that just because somebody is young that they're going to turn out a certain way, you know what I'm saying? Especially when they're being aided by their parents. By their parents, you know, because you learn this stuff at home you know, or it's condoned to some degree by your home, you know, not, not saying there are people where you don't know like what type of information kids get into online or whatever. Like I'm not saying it's impossible for them to pick it up elsewhere, Mm -hmm. but if, if you know, people have, you know, prejudices and like really messed up views of the world as adults and as older people, they're not in a desert somewhere. They have kids and grandkids exactly you know and that stuff gets passed down it gets normalized it gets minimalized like it's not that big of a deal or it's Mm -hmm. just a normal thing and then this is the result yeah 
I mean, it's, it's just really sad. And, you know, I just, you really just, there's so many fingers to point in the story, but ultimately, you know, we definitely need to talk about these gun laws more. It needs to be a public conversation. I don't care how long we have to talk about it or how many cycles we have to go through because it's just, it's really unnerving um, as an educator to know that this is a, a true possibility and, and to have children have to walk in fear for any other reason than the ones that already exist is, is absurd. It's really sad. So I definitely RIP to the victims. That's Absolutely. Four, four people gone, like just for no reason. It's, it's very children. sad. Children. It's really sad. Yeah. And just prayers up for that community as a whole, because I can only imagine what they're going through. Um, yeah. And you can listen to the interview that we did with um, Professor Porfiri, mm-hmm. um, who, yeah, Porfiri was Maurizio Porfiri, like back in um, October, I think it was. He does a lot of research about um, gun violence and like what types of things, like what data they're trying to use to figure out like what um, leads up to more of it. So it, it was an interesting interview and... Um, Unfortunately, it's evergreen. It's always relevant in this country. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and take a next music break before we get into our world news and a little bit of good news. This next track is called Another Day in America, and it's by Kali Uchis and Ozuna. We'll be right back. Another day in America, a blessing so they say. Stop at the border, the name at the border was sold as a dream. Everything changed in America, except nothing changed in America. Wanna tell me what's America? But who do you think built America? Money, creed. Money, creed.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And next up, we have Jasmine with our world news story. Okay, so this is, um, it's also, in my opinion, a bit of good news. Uh, This article is from Reuters. The title is Barbados Ditches Britain's Queen Elizabeth to Become a Republic. And this was written by Guy Falconbridge and Brian Ellsworth. Uh, And it was, this is from November 30th. Barbados ditched Britain's Queen Elizabeth as head of state, forging a new republic on Tuesday with its first ever president and severing its last remaining colonial bonds nearly 400 years after the first English ships arrived at the Caribbean island. At the strike of midnight, the new republic was born to cheers of hundreds of people lining Chamberlain Bridge in the capital, Bridgetown. A 21-gun salute fired as the national anthem of Barbados was played over a crowded hero square. Prince Charles, heir to the British throne, stood somberly as Queen Elizabeth's royal standard was lowered and the new Barbados declared a step which Republicans hope will spur discussion of similar proposals in other former British colonies that have the Queen as their sovereign. We the people must give Republic Barbados its spirit and its substance, Sandra Mason, the island's first president, said. We must shape its future. We are each other's and our nation's keepers. We the people are Barbados. Barbados cast the removal of Elizabeth II, who is still queen of 15 other realms, including the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, and Jamaica, as a way to finally break with the demons of its colonial history. In a message to the new president, the 95-year-old queen sent her congratulations to Barbadians, who she said have held a special place in her heart. I send you and all Barbadians my warmest good wishes for your happiness, peace, and prosperity in the future, she said. After a dazzling display of Barbadian dance and music, complete with speeches celebrating the end of colonialism, Barbadian singer Rihanna was declared a national hero by Prime Minister Mia Motley, the leader of Barbados's Republican movement. The birth of the Republic 55 years to the day since Barbados declared independence unclasps almost all the colonial bonds that have kept the tiny island tied to England since an English ship claimed it for King James I in 1625. It may also be a harbinger of a broader attempt by other former colonies to cut ties to the British monarchy as it braces for the end of Elizabeth's nearly 70-year reign and the future accession of Charles. Full stop this colonial page, Winston Farrell, a Barbadian poet, told the ceremony. Some have grown up stupid under the Union Jack, lost in the castle of their skin. It is about us rising out of the cane fields, reclaiming our history, he said. End all that she mean, put a Bayesian there instead. 
So um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in the interest of time, but also Prince Charles uh, made a speech that referenced um, the stain of slavery. Um, and he mentioned the continuing friendship of the two nations. And, you know, I talking about the relationship between England and the Caribbean as like friendship, I think is, I understand why he would say that for a ceremony like this, but really like friendship. Um, so back to the article, Britain cast slavery as a sin of the past, but some Barbadians are calling for compensation from Britain. Activist David Denny celebrated the creation of the Republic, but said he opposes the visit by Prince Charles, noting the royal family for centuries benefited from the slave trade. Our movement would also like the royal family to pay a reparation, Denny said in an interview in Bridgetown. The English initially used white British indentured servants to toil on the plantations of tobacco, cotton, India, indigo, and sugar. Indigo and sugar. But Barbados, in just a few decades, would become England's first truly profitable slave society. Um, the article says Barbados received 600,000 enslaved Africans. I, I would say, you know, 600,000 Africans were kidnapped from their home and forced to go to Barbados between 1627 and 1833, and they were put to work in the sugar plantations, earning fortunes for the English owners. More than 10 million Africans were shackled into the Atlantic slave trade by European nations between the 15th and 19th centuries. Those who survived the often brutal voyage ended up toiling on plantations. So um, skipping ahead a little bit more, Barbados will remain a republic within the Commonwealth, a grouping of 54 countries across Africa, Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Outside the lavish official ceremony, some Barbadians said they were uncertain what the transition to a republic even meant or why it mattered. They should leave Queen Elizabeth be, leave her as the boss. I don't understand why we need to be a republic, says Sean Williams, 45, standing in the shadow of an independence monument. The last time the queen was removed as head of state was in 1992, when the Indian Ocean Island of Mauritius proclaimed itself a republic. Uh, and for those of you who are not familiar, because I always sort of forget, um, this is just from uh, Wikipedia, the Commonwealth of Nations, which is also known as the Commonwealth, is a political association of 54 states, almost all of which are former territories of the British Empire. They do not have legal obligations to each other, but they're connected through their use of English language and historical ties. Their members shared values, their, share, their stated shared values of democracy human rights and the rule of law are enshrined in something called the Commonwealth Charter and promoted by the Quadrennial Commonwealth Games. Wow. Well, that is definitely good news. I mean, there's no room for colonialism in today's world at all. So I definitely think this is a step in the right direction. And I'm happy that their president is coming forth and, and really taking this moment serious and you know, I'm looking forward to see the, you know, how the country flourishes after this um, most overdue honor, honestly. Yeah, it's like after reading about, because I remember seeing the headlines and being like, wow, like that's so exciting. That's great. 
Um, but then the more I read about the more the more I read about it, the more I started to think or wonder like, is this more of a symbolic change? Because you know, like in a lot of countries around the world, like the president is more of a figurehead when the prime minister is the person that actually is like making most of the decisions. So it does seem like it is a lot about removing the symbol of having the Queen of England as your official sovereign and replacing her with a symbol of that represents more so like the actual people of the island. But it wasn't clear to me. Um, I'm glad they brought up reparations because it's like, what what is this going to mean like materially for the people on the island? You know, right, right. And there, there were there was another article on Reuters um, before it officially happened, where they were talking to everyday people just on the island who were saying, you know, I don't really understand what this is going to change, or if anything is going to change, or like that they're more worried about the economy and things of that nature. So it was good to see, but it's also, you know, it's it's a step, but it's also very much like a symbol, which not that symbols don't matter, like they are important, but I hope that there is some other like material action or changes that happen as well after this. Like maybe this will be a step towards that. And I hope it's, that's the case. Exactly. And that, you know, we, Barbados is not really in the news a lot uh, for, you know, corruption or anything of those natures that happen with their, country they seem to really do well in the tourism industry and i have never really heard about any major um economic or political conflicts in the country so i hope that this is a a good step and that they're able to maintain what has been working for them and you know um include some infrastructure that helps the country to flourish and pays them back for their years of taxes or service or however however they were serving (laughs) <laughs> the queen um definitely reparations are in order yeah and i hope that there are i hope it is a domino effect because it, it is so many different countries around the world that still technically have the queen as their head and you know i know she's a figurehead but it's like why keep that symbol you know like if you're independent after all this time you know and it, it is such the prince prince charles was trying to spin it or you know talking in this way as if you know the two countries just decided to become joined it's like that's not the history is so violent and so exploitative and even though it's not technically a colony anymore there's still a lot of vestiges of you know that colonial past that are with us today where you know i hope more and more countries are like you know what forget this especially since you know it's about to be the end of her reign anyway like just like what's the point of keeping her as that figure exactly exactly all right well emily what do you have for our good news for us Alrighty, and now for some good news. Uh, This story comes from a November 24th article in the Washington Post by Ellen Francis titled, Photos show vast coral spawning event in Great Barrier Reef, giving divers hope for climate change recovery. The article explains, quote, Divers and scientists recorded recorded the the birth of billions of coral babies in Australia's Great Barrier Reef on Tuesday night in a colorful show of life that they hope is a signal that the world's biggest coral reef ecosystem can recover from climate change. 
It's a sign of hope that it's doing well, and we need to keep protecting it, said marine biologist Gareth Phillips, who monitored the coral spawning event, which is when the corals breed over two to three days by casting sperm and eggs into the water once every year in the Pacific Ocean. The fertilization off the coast of Cairns showed that the reef's ecological functions were working even after facing pressures from climate change, according to Phillips, the principal marine biologist at the reef the Reef Teach Research Center. I can only encourage anyone to come see the reef and what we've just been witnessing, Phillips told the Washington Post on Wednesday. It will change their life. Quote, the Great Barrier Reef has in the past been damaged by rising water temperatures that triggered coral bleaching so severe that it alarmed scientists. When the water warms beyond a certain point, corals evict their food providers, the algae that they shelter in a symbiotic relationship. The corals appear white after ejecting their colorful partners and ultimately can starve to death. Mass coral bleachings triggered by rising sea surface temperatures killed 14% of the world's coral between 2009 and 2018, or what amounts to more than all of the coral alive in Australia's reefs, a study found last month. The researchers warned that, that climate change could wipe out more coral as oceans continue warming without curbs to human emissions of planet-warming greenhouse gases. But, they said, the underwater ecosystems can bounce back with some, with some respite. That's a main takeaway from the coral spawning event for Phillips, who worries that people may get the impression it's too late to save the Great Barrier Reef. This event is a great showcase that it's not too late, he said. It's got its pressures, but this is why we need to act to look after it. In, a popular, in popular travel destinations, nonprofit organizations and biologists have worked through the pandemic to restore reefs, and some of these experts, including in Australia, have called on tourists to help. The coronavirus shutdowns that forced a pause in many industries also benefited some coral protection efforts, enough for one reef in Hawaii to show signs of regeneration. Yeah, so that's just a little uh, good news that we all need to hear sometimes. Um, you know, the existential threat of climate change, my house of horrors, all that stuff. Um, just a little bright spot in all of that. Well, it's definitely good news to hear that the coral reef is restoring and there's babies being born that's always good news yeah i mean that description of how they do it i'm like oh that's uh it's like it's sperm splashing around or something shooting around (laughs) in the coral reef like i don't know if i would want to see it but well it probably looks like nothing like people doing that (laughs) but it's just the it's just the way that she described it It was like oh wow that's i know it seemed very cinematic (laughs) that's that's explosive um but that is good news because um yeah i do think it's easy to get caught up in like fatalism but you know the more that you think things are locked in and they can't get better i think that makes it less likely that there will be changes so it is encouraging to see that you know, yeah, these things can be restored. They can come back. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that story, Emily. Did you ever see the um, barrier the reef or any coral period? Yes, I have seen the coral reef. I've been scuba diving and I enjoy, um, well, I've been scuba diving and what's the other one? The one you do above the water. Snorkeling. Yes. One of my favorite pastimes. So yeah, I've been lucky enough to see it. And it's so beautiful. Um, All the colors. It's like a completely different world down there. 
Oh, where did you go? Um, I in Mexico, I went scuba diving. Um, and I also went, I think, Trinidad, uh, Tobago. I was in Tobago. I seen some coral there and somewhere else, another Caribbean place, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, definitely always good to. It's like a whole nother world, man. You go under there a and you just kind of. <laughs> You kind of just realize. Oh wait, no, like, that's the that's the wrong one. Under the sea, right? Like, yeah, right. You're, you're in the water. Exactly. Exactly. The human world, it's a mess. <laughs> but under the sea, you know, everything's good. Under, under the, the sea, sea every under the, the water, the fish don't stink. You remember yeah. that from Bobby's World? No, okay. from who? Bobby's World, the cartoon. You don't remember that cartoon? No, oh, I never Lord. heard of. Bobby's World. Yes, you got to look that up. It was a really cool cartoon when I was um, coming up. And this little kid, his name was Bobby. He wrote this little, like, uh, two-wheeler. And his family was hilarious. I'm trying to remember the name of the actor that played his uncle that made the show really famous. Um, But, yeah, Bobby used to like to sing songs. And one of his songs was Under the Water the Fish Don't Stink. Oh, Oh, wow. Okay. I'll have to play that in a a future episode. (laughs) Sure, like throw it back. Exactly. Awesome. Have you ever been to the to see the coral reef or to the Great Barrier Reef? No, I am definitely afraid of water. Like I like to look at it like when I'm watching a documentary or, you know, some kind of show about nature, but I don't like to be surrounded by water. Okay. So, you know, I can appreciate the beauty like in an aquarium or something like that, or just, you know, people that professionally do it. Like, I think it's great and it's beautiful, but like, no, I, I personally have not been. Yeah, it, it's an adventure. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I can't say I want to do scuba diving again, but I'm glad I did. Yeah. Yeah. So but... yeah, hope hopefully that these things will be around like for future generations and you know, we need this, like the planet needs these things, you know, so I hope that, you know, it continues to spawn and grow and there's more babe, coral reef sperm party babies, <laughs> or whatever they doing down there. Right. Let's keep that. Let's keep that party going. So. All right, y'all. Well, that concludes this week's episode of Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. And before you say you play our last track, I just want to say happy birthday to Jay-Z. It's actually his birthday today. And I'm in Brooklyn, so I just thought I'd shout him out. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, happy birthday, Sean Carter, Beyonce's <laughs> husband. Um, <Blue's> daddy. <laughs> yeah, so um, I guess I'll take us out. So in honor of uh, national hero of Barbados, Rihanna, this is Consideration by Rihanna and SZA. Uh, thanks for listening, and we will see you, or you'll hear us next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I come blood running Never stop me, no, 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 no. I know you try to. I come riding in on a pale white horse, and in now high still less fortunate. I do advise you run in, back, running on back when you're breaking it down for me, 'cause I can hear you too. Times running on back, will it ever make sense to me? I got to do things my own way, darling. Will you ever let me? Will you ever respect me? No.
If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.